evidence and answers. Can we believe the biblical story of Adam and Eve? Most people believe it is a myth used to explain the creation of mankind. However, discoveries in biochemistry are now showing that we can trace our genealogical record to a historical pair of first parents, many call the genealogical Adam and Eve. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on our show, Pat and his guest, Dr. Fazal Rana, explain the evidence for the genealogical Adam and Eve. Here with part one is our host, Pat Zucran. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, the science today teaches us that mankind evolved from a previous population, and so the Genesis account of Adam and Eve cannot be true. Many Christians believe there is no evidence for an Adam and Eve, and that the Genesis account must be believed as perhaps a leap of faith. Well, is there scientific evidence that builds a case for a first pair of human ancestors? Can we trace our genetic ancestry to the first pair of humans? Does genetic mapping help us out in this area? Many find this a bit hard to believe, but to address this issue today is Dr. Fazale Rana. Fazale Rana is the Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe, a fantastic ministry there. And he is the author of several groundbreaking books. Uh, we featured on him on our show numerous times, but he's written books such as Who Was Adam, Creating Life in a Lab, The Cells Design, and Humans 2.0. He holds a Ph.D. in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. So, Fuzz, welcome back to Evidence and Answers. Well, Pat, thanks so much for having me. As always, it's a, it's a pleasure to hang out with you. Thanks. Yes. Now, we're talking about the evidence for an Adam and Eve today. But before we begin, let's begin with who are Adam and Eve and where did they come from? Yeah, well, from my perspective, both as a, a biochemist and as a Christian, I see Adam and Eve as being the very first human beings who were created in God's image through God's direct and personal involvement. When I look at the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 creation accounts, as well as other passages in Scripture that make reference to Adam and to Eve, I see no other way to understand those passages other than that, that again, human beings were the direct product of God's handiwork, there's an intimacy described in Scripture with respect to our creation as human beings, and that not only were Adam and Eve the very first humans, but they were unique compared to all other of God's creatures in that they are made in God's image, uniquely made in God's image. So as a scientist, you take the account that he's created from the dust of the earth and Eve is created from his rib. You, you take that literally. Yeah, now I do, although I would say that I think there is some metaphorical language and poetic language in the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 account. So when I see Adam being described as being created from the dust of the earth, obviously as human beings, our bodies are not made up of silica and alumina and, and things like that. I mean, we're, we're, we're made out of organic materials, but we are made out of the same stuff that is of the earth, you know, and so... Uh, while we're not, you know, directly animated dirt, if you will, 
we are indirectly made out of the same stuff as the earth. And so in a sense, I would say that that's true, literally speaking, but also there's clearly a metaphorical and poetic element to that description of our creation. But it still, to me, involves God intervening in a direct way, making us, again, as physical beings, but also in Genesis 2, when God is breathing the breath of life into us, I see that as God giving us something special that no other creature receives, which is the image of God. You know, it's interesting in Genesis 2, uh, 19, it talks about uh, the animals and the birds being made from the dust of the earth. They do not receive God's divine breath. And so I see that divine breath as being God imparting the image to us as human beings. Now, let's compare that to the evolutionary model of human development. I'm, I mean, it's a big question, but briefly summarize the evolutionary model of, of human development. Well, I mean, in a nutshell, the evolutionary model would argue that human beings, like all life on Earth, again, this is according to the evolutionary view, not, not my view, that human beings, like all life on Earth, are the product of an evolutionary history, and that, in a sense, that evolutionary history is unguided, is undirected, and that we really were just the lucky happenstance of an evolutionary process. And, and that view, I think, renders human beings ultimately with very little worth and value. There is no purpose to our existence. We are no different or distinct than any other creature that lived, other than we might have advanced cognitive abilities, but the argument would be that those advanced cognitive abilities evolved as well, just like our physical makeup evolved, so does our advanced cognitive uh, capacities. And people would argue that the evidence for human evolution is twofold. One, it's the hominins that we see in the fossil record, like Lucy and Homo erectus and Neanderthals. And then they would also argue it's our genetic similarity to creatures like the great apes. Yeah, I was going to ask you how the evolutionary model is presented as, you know, really the only valid or viable model of how humans developed and it's presented as really having a overwhelming case or evidence for its case and how strong is the evidence for the evolutionary model of human development well you know from my perspective it's very clear that we do have a high degree of genetic similarity with uh, the great apes and with even uh, creatures like neanderthals because we've been able to sequence the neanderthal genome but I think we could understand not only the genetic similarities, but our anatomical and physiological similarities as reflecting uh, common design as opposed to common descent. And in fact, prior to Darwin, you had scientists like Sir Richard Owen, who interpreted shared features that humans had with other creatures as, again, reflecting an archetype that existed in the mind of God and was functionally manifested in the created order, or Carl Linnaeus, who is the founder of modern-day taxonomy, actually grouped human beings with the great apes and referred to us as primates. Linnaeus was a creationist. And so, again, he saw that similarity as reflecting, again, you know, a divine plan where God is employing similar designs as he brings about his creative purposes. Now, when it comes to the hominin fossil record, here we have absolute chaos. Now, Many times you'll see people presenting the evolutionary view as if it's all buttoned down. It's not, you know, no speculation with high degree of certainty. But the fact of the matter is we have no idea how these different hominins relate to one another 
in an evolutionary sense. Every time a new discovery is made, it overturns pre-existing ideas about how evolution would have transpired. There's no consensus among anthropologists as, as to how humans would have evolved. There's no clear direct pathway through the hominin fossil record going from an ancient hominin to modern humans where we have very clear transitional forms. All of those creatures that we think of traditionally as being our transitional intermediates are evolutionary dead ends and side branches, even when viewed in, in evolutionary terms. So to me, the appeal to the, the fossil record to support human evolution is not very compelling because of the absolute chaos that exists in terms of trying to understand how to interpret that fossil record. Yeah, and I think even when you're talking at the genetic level, as you would know, even though we're, let's say, 98, 99%, we like the genetic makeup of the great apes, still that one, per, I mean, you're talking percentages, right? I mean, that 1% in the genetic mapping of a human and a ape, I mean, you're still talking millions of differences when it comes to uh, amino acids and protein combinations in the whole DNA structure. That's exactly right. And interestingly enough, there is a growing consensus that the degree of genetic similarity may be more closer to 90 to 95 percent as opposed to 98 or 99 percent. Wow. It exacerbates that difference. Also, what turns out to be really significant isn't so much the genetic similarity, but rather how those genes in, the, in our genome are used compared to the genome of other great apes. Uh, so, for example, if you think about this idea of gene expression, it's similar to looking, thinking about a dictionary where the catalog of genes in our genome is like the words in a dictionary. But what we do when we write a book, for example, is we take the words in the dictionary and we use them in specific combinations. And some words are used more often than other words. Some words are not used at all. Likewise, in our genome, depending on the cell type in the tissue, some genes are used heavily, other genes are not used at all, and some genes are only used at certain times in the cell cycle or the course of development. And so that pattern of usage is called gene expression. And it turns out that the gene expression patterns that we see in the human brain compared to the chimp brain is very different. We see other indications of differences in, in gene expression as well that relate to features of the genome that correlate with genetic expression. And so, in a sense, genetic comparison isn't really the most important thing to think about. It's really how are those genes used. And here, humans and chimps really are radically different, particularly when it comes to brain tissue. Just as a, a point of comparison, we as human beings have a 35% similarity to daffodils but, or, or an 80% similarity to mice and rats. But nobody would say, well, human beings are, you know, 80% rat or 35% daffodil. Those are almost absurd statements. So what does it mean when we say that we are 95% chimpanzee? That's a, a meaningless statement. And so really, that the degree of similarity to me is has very little true biological meaning. It's really gene expression. And there, again, we see big differences. Wow. Well, Fuzz, even among Christians, there are several views of human development. Multi-regional view that Adam and Eve were the first, I mean, there were many humans, but Adam and Eve is the first human pair with a soul or spirit. I mean, there are several views even amongst 
Christians, aren't there, as to, you know, human development? There are, yeah. I mean, there are some people who would say Adam and Eve really are the product of an evolutionary history, that they were, they were just a two of a large number of individuals that God selected and placed in the Garden of Eden. That's a, an increasingly commonplace view that I see among Christians. Others would even go as far to say, really, Adam and Eve are mythical, that they are kind of, and that the Genesis 1 and 2 accounts are really mythical. They're theologically true, but they're not historically or scientifically true. And this is all, both are attempts to try to reconcile the biblical account with the the concept of human evolution. My approach is to start with Scripture and say, I think Scripture clearly is teaching that Adam and Eve were indeed the very first human beings and that all humanity comes from them, that they were truly alone at the point of their creation. There were no other creatures like them. And I see, again, human origins from a biblical sense as being a creation event, not an evolutionary event. And so I believe that the hominins were real, but I just see them as creatures that God created that lived and then disappeared. I don't necessarily see them as part of an evolutionary sequence, whether it's divine or through natural mechanism alone. Yes. Now, does genetic mapping help us out in our understanding here? Do you believe that we can trace our ancestry through genetic mapping, you know, to a first pair of humans? Yeah, well, this is something that I think is really pretty remarkable, and it represents a relatively new area in anthropology called molecular anthropology, where people are using genetic variability that is exists in different populations around the world to try to reconstruct the very early stages of human history. And that, that genetic variability is due to differences in DNA sequences. And there's a number of different genetic markers that could be used. Two that are of particular interest are mitochondrial DNA and Y-chromosomal DNA. And mitochondrial DNA is a small circular piece of DNA found in organelles in all the cells in our body called mitochondria. And it turns out that DNA is inherited exclusively from mother to child. So my daughters have my wife's mitochondrial DNA. They don't have my mitochondrial DNA. So it gives us insight into the maternal lineage of humanity. And remarkably, you can trace the origin of every person on the planet back to an ancestral sequence of mitochondrial DNA that's dubbed mitochondrial Eve. And there are some people that believe mitochondrial Eve was a real individual that, in a sense, could be called called the mother of us all, at least with respect to mitochondrial DNA. Likewise, with Y-chromosomal DNA, this is inherited, of course, from father to son, so it gives insight into the paternal lineage, and it turns out that every man on the planet traces an origin back to an ancestral sequence of Y-chromosomal DNA that is thought by many people to be an an actual male individual dubbed Y-chromosome Adam. And it turns out that you can actually figure out about when mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam would have lived, and they lived relatively recently, thousands of years ago, not millions of years ago, and their origin seems to be very close to where we think the Garden of Eden would have been, and that Adam and Eve, at least mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam, seem to have lived in effect the same time. And so this is really, really interesting. And by the way, this is essentially based on 
an evolutionary analysis of our genetic makeup. And so it's interesting that this evolutionary data seems to be bumping into the biblical account of human origins. It could be that mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam could indeed be the biblical Adam and Eve. You can't say that conclusively, but at least it's remarkable how suggestive the scientific data is. Yes. Now, you know, I know this is a loaded question, but could you kind of spell that out for us? I mean, how do we know? I mean, how can how do scientists trace this mitochondrial DNA back to a single pair of human beings? I mean, how does that, you know, in the best way, easiest way you can, uh, how does that process work? Well, let's say let's think of 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 a small population of humans that are migrating around the world in the very early days of human history. And that small population, as it gets larger, there's a group of it that will leave that larger group and begin to migrate off to another region of the Earth. And in that group that breaks away, they're going to naturally accrue changes in their genetic material through mutations. These would be neutral mutations that have really no effect on on their genome or on their their biology. Uh, but, But yet these mutations will accrue over time. And the original group that remained is also going to accrue mutations, but they're going to accrue different mutations. So by looking at the similarities and the differences of human population groups, you can begin to construct kind of a family tree where you could say, well, these two groups look like they came from one another and would have shared an ancestral group. And that ancestral group looks like it may have shared an an ancestral group with another group over here. And over time, as you work your way backward, you wind up with this single ancestral sequence. And by mapping out those trees onto a map of the Earth, you can kind of see where those different ancestral groups lived. And therefore, you could begin to map out how migrations happened. But as you work your way backward then, how those migrations happened, if you work your way backward, you'd wind up with the place where it looks as if humanity would have originated. Now, there's some assumptions that go into this. So this is, you know, somewhat of a simplistic presentation. Nevertheless, it becomes a very powerful tool to use to begin to see how different people groups relate to each other and how humans migrated around the world. But it also gives us a time frame when this happened, because mutations kind of accrue at a regular rate. And so we know what that rate approximately is. So if you count the number of differences in the mutations and you know what the rate of mutation is, you can sort of figure out the time frame when the different groups separated from each other. Well, that's fascinating. Plus, what kind of archaeological evidence exists to support this position? Well, uh, you can use archaeological evidence to track the migration of humanity around the world. And you can also use archaeological evidence as well to kind of get an idea when modern humans appeared. You know, we, from a scientific perspective as human beings, would be known as anatomically and behaviorally modern humans. And we can look into the fossil record and the archaeological record and we can say, yes, this is about the time when anatomically and modern, behaviorally modern humans appear based on the fossil record, based on the archaeological evidence that shows advanced cognitive abilities. And that by the way, coincides very close to the location where mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam would have lived. It corresponds very closely to the time that they would have lived. And then you can begin to look at 
the archaeological record and the fossil record to, to corroborate the migrations of humans around the world, and, and it, it actually does corroborate. So we've got really three lines of evidence that mutually reinforce each other to give us a clear picture. Yes, you stated, you know, that we kind of know the area in which humans originate. Where would that area be? Well, scientifically, it looks as if humanity originates in Africa, East Africa. And again, you know, one of the assumptions that goes into the scientific analysis is that we're assuming that where people are today is where they have always been, historically speaking. So it's quite possible that the that while scientifically the location is roughly East Africa in the region of Ethiopia, it could very well be that humanity's origin may have been closer to, to the Middle East. But now, interestingly enough, biblically, we're not completely sure where exactly the Garden of Eden would have been. We've got these four rivers, the Tigris, Euphrates, Gihon, and the Pishon rivers. Uh, we know where two of them are. Two, it's speculative as to where those rivers are. And some people think that the Garden of Eden could have actually included parts of Africa itself, parts of East Africa. For example, there's mention of the land of Cush in Genesis 3, and the land of Cush corresponds to modern-day Ethiopia. So the scientific location for humanity's origin seems to align pretty closely with the biblical location. Yeah, you know, being an archaeologist... We know that the oldest civilizations are right around there, you know, Sumer, Egypt, right around that area. So that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, again, you know, it, does the scientific evidence prove the biblical account of human origins? I think that would be probably an overt statement. But I do think that what we see here is harmony and broad, at least that broad agreement, so much so that I think for somebody who is a Christian who embraces, you know, the biblical account of human origins, you don't have to do it exclusively on faith. You're not deluding yourself by holding that view, but rather there is scientific support that really points to, I think, the credibility of that account, though, again, it's not a, you know, a robust one-to-one correspondence, but it's remarkable that that harmony even exists. Yes, at, you know, to the point where you can build a reasonable case for the biblical account. Yeah, I would agree with you and, and applaud your work there. I was just going to say that to me, you know, the, the case, uh, scientifically speaking, for an Adam and Eve is stronger today than any other time in human history. And that to me is really remarkable. Yeah, and, and Fuzz, you know, how does, I guess, the uh, scientific world, I'm, I'm talking the non-Christian scientific world, does not hold to the biblical account of Adam and Eve. I mean, how are they looking at this evidence from DNA mapping, perhaps going right back to an original pair? Yeah, well, people in the scientific community would basically agree that there does appear to be a mitochondrial Eve and a Y-chromosomal Adam. Oh, really? Wow. Yes, but they're very quick to distance that view from a biblical understanding of human origins. And so they would argue, well, mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam would be one of a large, a relatively large population of humans that existed. They just happened to be those two individuals that were lucky enough to have their genetic fingerprints survive till today, where all the other Adams and Eves that existed would have had their lineages essentially die out. And so they would 
adopt a view called the one lucky mother, the one lucky father view, they would argue that there were many Adams and there were many Eves. That's why some evangelicals would, are taking the view that Adam and Eve were not the, the first human beings, but they were representatives that God chose and placed in the garden because it's an attempt to try to reconcile the biblical account with this claim that there was a large population of, of humans that existed. And again, mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosomal Adam were just two of those individuals. And part of the argument is that the genetic variability, at least from an evolutionary biologist's perspective, is that the genetic variability of humans today is too great to have come from just two individuals. It would have required, at minimum, uh, several thousand individuals. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You will also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrad.